So before we get started, uh, I'm just going to pray. Pray that the Holy Spirit would help me in this. So, Blessed Lord, Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, we know that none of us would be here this morning were it not for your intervention in our lives. Lord, were it not for you loving us and calling us and appearing to us, Lord, and saving us. And Lord, we praise you for all the things you've given us, Lord. We thank you for this home. We thank you for life and for friendship. Lord, we thank you for coffee and for wine and for communion bread and for children and for guitars and for music and this annoying hum of the fish tank, Lord. We praise you that we are able to do this, God. We know that we are not worthy to run with you, and yet you have brought us along for this journey. Lord, I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, rise up in me, Lord, as I, as I preach, Lord, as I look at your word. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts, Lord, especially to this gospel message with that, um, Lord, is for every day, Lord, this gospel message that we often forget. Lord, soften our hearts, open our ears. Lord, let the scales fall from our eyes to see afresh and once again this gospel that you've given us. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little bit of background to uh, the book of Titus. So the book of Titus is a letter written by Paul to Titus, uh, who is uh, one of the elders at the church of Crete. And kind of the main reason why Paul is writing the letter of Titus, which is now the book of Titus, is to instruct the Cretan Christians, which if you say that 10 times, it's really hard. So, but to instruct the Cretan Christians about the interconnectedness between belief and our behavior. And so at this point in the church's history, false teachers from, from what was called the circumcision party had come into the church. And there were really um, Jewish Christians who worked uh, in, a, in a, a mode or, a, a, or operated out of a works-based salvation that was far more concerned about outward cleanliness, but was devoid of inward purity. And so Paul is writing this letter to Titus, and he's urging him to correct this false doctrine that is kind of sort of spreading like wildfire through the church, this false gospel. And so everything we see in the letter of Titus exists in opposition to kind of these false teachers of the circumcision party and this false gospel, which actually found kind of this unique foothold in the city of Crete. Earlier in the letter, uh, in chapter one, Paul uh, quotes one of the Cretan prophets who said this about the Cretans. He said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul unapologetically says that, yes, this is true of the Christians. He says, yes, this statement is worthy of, of truth. This is true. They are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Uh, Polybius, who was an ancient historian around this time in kind of the Greek Hellenistic period, he said this about the city of Crete. He said, it is almost impossible to find, except in some rare cases, personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. So Crete was not a good place to live and minister in. It was this just depraved and yucky place. And to be called a Cretan was actually synonymous with debaucherous and, and wicked living with a particular bent towards theft 
personal gain and defrauding others, which at this time in the world, philanthropy was something that was considered to be uh, a hallmark of goodness, giving to others. Cretans didn't feel that way. They would take for whatever reason, and they actually praised one another for defrauding and thieving from, if you could get away with that, that was a good thing in Crete. And so Paul says, Crete is this terrible place. These false teachers are, are teaching this false gospel out of this personal and shameful gain, which actually reflects Crete as a whole. And so these false teachers are, are not preaching a true gospel and their intentions are twisted. Instead of being outward focused, which is, the which is what the gospel is supposed to move us towards, their primary motivation was to justify and glorify and have gain from themselves. But as Paul moves to the end of his letter, he stops addressing these false teachers who walked in this, this self-righteousness and this works-based salvation, and he stops addressing the wickedness of the prevailing culture. But instead, he addresses himself, and he addresses Titus. In verse 3, he says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So Paul is taking the mirror that is Crete, this just foolish and, and rebellious and depraved island in the Mediterranean Sea, and this false righteousness of the circumcision party, and he's saying, Titus... Do you remember that you and I were once just like them? And Paul is holding up this mirror to us today. The Holy Spirit is holding up this mirror and he's saying, do you remember that you once walked in this way too? He's saying, don't forget that you were once completely foolish. Don't forget that you were once willfully disobedient to God. Don't, don't, Remove from your mind the chains you were once held by and how much you actually loved being enslaved to your sin. Don't forget that time of your life when everything was about you and your wants and how much you desired the titles and the, and the accolades and the prominence of others. Don't forget how much you were hated and how much hate you actually spread in return. So we have to be moved by Paul's rebuke to the Galatians when he says, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. And so today as we're gathered here in our home for our first Sunday, I'd like us to remember where we once were. And that, that holds merit whether or not your testimony is, I was this terrible disgusting person and the Lord saved me and this is what I am now, or hey, I've always been a church kid. You were still foolish before God. You were still disobedient before God. You still loved yourself more than anyone else before God. You were still hateful and hated before God. And so let us remember where we came from because it can be all too easy for us to forget where we came from, right? That before we tasted of the goodness of God, we walked in this exact same way. We walked in the same way as people outside of, fam outside of God's family walked. So we believed untrue and foolish things about ourselves and about God and about the world. And it reflected 
the way we related to God and the way we related to others. And, and as a church, once we've walked a little ways and we've figured out what these home church things look like and we're in a building and we're established and we're in the community and we've found favor with God and we've found favor with man, it's going to be very easy for us to believe that we can now run on our own when it's God who first taught us how to walk. It's going to be very easy for us to even think that we had always run on our own. We had just always done this without him. And it can be very easy for us to begin to relate to others outside of the church based not on who we were, these foolish and evil and sinful and hateful people, and in light of what we've received in spite of who we were, but instead we can look at those around us in contempt. And we find the basis for our acceptance before God somehow flowing out of the goodness of who we are. You see, when the basis of our acceptance before God flows out of you, you will be very quick to dismiss and cast out people who are different than you. And it's against this background of self-deceit and self-righteousness and scorn for others that the Holy Spirit shines for us this beautiful and clear gospel light. Paul is saying, formerly you were, but now you are. And through the grace and goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior has appeared. Paul has fixed the light on us and he hasn't found anything good in you and I. And now he's shining this light on God and he's finding this perpetual goodness in who God is. Paul says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He saved us. And we have to focus not simply on what Paul says in verses 4 and 5, but also on what Paul does not say about the appearance of God, our Savior. He does not say that when our Savior appeared, he despised us. That we know Jesus, who is God, hates sin, and we are deeply riddled with sin. He does not say that when Jesus appeared, he was indifferent toward us, though we know God has no need of anyone or anything at all. Like, I was sitting here thinking about this this week, and I knew we'd all be huddled here, and I was like, God... If this house caught on fire with everyone inside of it and we all died, God's plans would move on unfaced. God needs no one or anything to accomplish his persons. He does not say that when Jesus appeared, he looked down on us, though we know we were worthy of Jesus's disdain and pity. Paul says out of this pitiable state, Jesus appears and he did what? He saved us. He didn't push us away, though he had every right to, and God would have been justified in pushing us away because of our sin. But no, he drew near to us, and he drew us near to him. See, Jesus spent every single day of his life righteously living in the shadow of a cross. And that cross was given power because of our sin. We had made ourselves an enemy of God. We, we willfully opposed him in our hatred, in our rebellion, and yet when he appeared to us, we did not experience the condemnation we rightly deserved. Far from it. We actually experienced a salvation beyond what we could have ever possibly imagined. 
From the cross, we experienced, Father, forgive them, for they know not what we do. We experienced, come to me, all those who are weary and laden down. We experienced, take my yoke upon you, for it is easy and it is light, and I will give you rest. We experienced, Father, I want them to be where I'm going to be. That is what we experienced from our Savior far from what we deserved. And Paul says that this is not because of anything we had done. You see, the circumcision party was telling people that there were things that you had to do in order to be saved. There were certain acts and certain ways you needed to cleanse yourself and, and ways you needed to carry yourself in order to be found righteous. But Paul says, no, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to God's own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. You see, before Christ saved us, all of our works were evil. We, we literally had no righteousness. It was impossible for us to produce even one single righteous work. And God didn't save us because he scoured our lives and found one scrap of evidence and was like, ah, here's the thing that justifies Jameson. Here's the, here's the one thing that, that says that Jay is saved. Here's the, here's the one thing that says that Nikki is good. No. On the contrary, there was a mountain of evidence that pointed to us being unequivocally deserving of God's eternal separation from us, an eternal separation from God's goodness, and His wrath was poured out upon us because of our sin. But because God is loving, and because God is kind, and because God is merciful, and because God is righteous, which actually means faithful and promise-keeping, righteous means a covenant-keeping, Christ took that mountain of evidence that was stacked up against us, all these sins and all these things we've done. He, he took that evidence and he took it into his hand and he said, no, Father, this belongs to me. A sinless Savior took our sin and said, this is mine now. And the Father crushed him under the weight of that mountain of our sin. And God sacrificed his own son for us. And not only was this something we didn't do, it was done for us before we even wanted it to be done for us. Think about that. All this was done before God was even on our radar. All this was done before we even knew that we were sinners and it was no act of our own. But the Father, through the Holy Spirit, He cleansed us and He renewed us and He gave us new eyes to see our sin and to see Christ's appearance for what it truly was. Because formerly, when we saw Christ and we heard of Jesus, we thought it was foolishness. We thought that God was dumb for doing this. We hated this testimony and we enjoyed the slavery of sin that we found ourselves in and we constantly downplayed how far we fell from God's glory. 
But then, out of the blue, without us ever knowing we needed it, without us ever asking for it, without God being anywhere on our radar, the Holy Spirit acted on our behalf. And He unstopped our ears. And He made our hearts clean. And He renewed our minds. And He made us able to comprehend the truth of what Christ's appearing actually was. When the Holy Spirit moved in us, Christ's appearing was no longer foolishness. Christ's appearing to us was clearly salvation for us. That is what the Holy Spirit did. And Jesus' death brought the removal of God's fierce anger towards us. God was no longer angry with us. And Christ's life secured for us a promise of peace with the Father. And the beautiful thing is, not only did Jesus take that mountain of sin and claim it as his own, but in place of that mountain of sin, God heaped upon us mountain upon mountain upon mountain of Christ's righteousness, which was never our own. And we were lavished, my friends, absolutely lavished by the crushing weight of God's spirit of grace. Jesus was crushed for our sin. We are crushed by grace. And what that crushing does is it frees us from believing that there is any righteousness in us. And in that moment when the Holy Spirit crushed us by the grace of God, we trusted in what Jesus did for us. We trusted in His righteousness, in His ability to be faithful, in His ability to keep the promise, in His ability to fulfill the covenant, not our own. And even this power to believe, even this sight, was not our own. And it was a gift we could have never afforded. We didn't even think to ask for it before God moved in us. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ now exchanged our eternal death and separation from God for His eternal and abundant life. And God's mercy now prevails for us. As, as Paul says in Galatians 4, 6, that God sent forth His Spirit, which now lives in us. God now abides in us. He has cleansed us from the inside. He's far less concerned about the outward appearance because His Spirit lives in us and He knows what abides in us. And because God's mercy now prevails for us, we know it will continue to prevail for us. And so we've seen what we were. We know what we now are because of grace. We are righteous. Jesus became our sin. We became His righteousness. We are now righteous. But, but Paul goes further and he says, so that being justified. So God's righteousness is counted towards us. Christ's righteousness, Christ's ability to do what is right and fulfill the covenant is counted towards us. And because that righteousness is now given to us, we now stand justified before God because of Christ's righteousness and because of the gift of faith. And as long as Christ lives to testify of his own righteousness, which we know Christ died and he will never die again, 
Now that Christ lives and testifies of his righteousness, you and I and everyone in this room who is a child of God, we are now guaranteed a seat of honor at God's table. Can you, be- can you believe that? We are now guaranteed a seat of honor at God's table. Paul says we are heirs with Christ. In the court of God, when Jake goes to stand before his father in heaven, there is going to be a not guilty sign plastered across his side of the table because of what Christ did. We are heirs, not simply justified. We now stand to inherit the goodness. We now stand to inherit a world that is going to be made perfect in God's image. We are beneficiaries of what God has done. And not only does Paul say that we are justified, but he clearly tells us in verse 7 what we are justified by. He says this, So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This grace is a favor that is completely unmerited, and totally undeserved and 100% unasked for. It is the gift of gifts. We didn't work for it. We couldn't work for it. We didn't deserve it. We weren't really even asking for it. We weren't looking for it. And yet God brought it about and sent the Holy Spirit, moved in us, regenerated us, cleansed us so that we saw our sin and we asked for it. So I have some questions in light of this. Because God brought this about, because we weren't looking for it when God gave it, because it was done by grace, because it's based on Christ's righteousness, how can we lose something we never worked to gain? How can we lose this thing that was freely given to us? I never worked for it. It's not based on my merit. It's never going to be based on what I do. It's completely based on what Jesus did. How can I lose it? Or another question, how can we be cast out if our state before God depends not on our own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness that will never fail? How could we ever be cast out? Or another question, why are we so concerned with the outward appearance of ourselves and with others when God says that he cleansed us and regenerated us and purified us inside? God makes it clear he doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the inward life of his people. Or another question, how can we close the kingdom off to others when we don't get to decide who comes? How can we say, here's the boundaries of God's kingdom. This is what you must be like. This is what you must do. This is how you must cleanse yourself, which is what the circumcision party was saying. This is how you must live your life. When God says, no, I decide who comes. I decide who comes comes to my family sovereignly. And it's not based on what they do. It's based on my mercy prevailing for them. Last question. How can we believe we are something when we clearly are not? How can we as Christians be justified by grace, showered in mercy, lavished by the Holy Spirit, and then get to a point in our Christian walk where we believe we are now something? When if we took the line back to where we were at the epicenter in the beginning of our faith was God and only God. And it wasn't us.
Why do we believe we're something when we're not? My friends, this gospel is our hope. That God appeared to us and He saved us, not by any effort of our own, but by His own faithfulness and His own mercy and His own righteousness and for His glory and for His namesake. This is our hope. And we've seen what we were and we see what we now are. And by the promise of the Holy Spirit, by the righteousness of Christ prevailing for us, we see that we are going to be heirs with God. This is the gospel. This is it. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. This is it. So in light of that, how do we apply this gospel? Because it's not enough to just know the gospel. You have to do something with it, which is the basis of the letter of Titus. The connection between believing and behavior. It's not enough to just be able to espouse the gospel to tell people what it is. You have to live it. It has to make a change. So what do we do with this truth that Christ dies for unworthy sinners? What do we do for this truth that Christ died for us? The first thing we do is we prize this truth, this gospel, our number one value. We prize this above all others. Out of everything we do, the gospel feeds into that. Okay? The gospel flows into everything we do. Because we can easily be tempted after our justification by, by Christ's righteousness to forget that nothing in us brought it about. And that there's no spark in us to be found for the fact that we're righteous. And what it should do is, is humble us and cause us to rejoice in God's glory and to be sensitive to others. And to see ourselves not as elevated above other human beings, but on an equal playing field, all having fallen short of, glory, of God's glory. This is where it should put us. But instead, we too often become prideful and exclusive and, and isolated and self-righteous. And ultimately, we become unappealing to a city that so desperately needs the salvation that the gospel brings. And we subtly believe that we are better than those people, right? And we all have a those people, right? We're, we're better than that group or we're better than that group because they don't get this right and they do that or they have tattoos or those guys drink wine or, uh, you know, they spin sometimes in church. <laughs> it's like whatever it is, we, we say we're better than them and somehow believe we're something when we're really not. And we minister out of this, this shameful gain for ourselves. We steal God's glory. And we ultimately defraud those around us from experiencing the truth. My friends, if you simply believe the gospel, but you don't live in gospel rhythms, your life will reflect that you don't really believe the gospel. If you can simply articulate the gospel, but you can't give a cup of water to the poor, or you can't touch the dirty, your life will reflect that you don't actually believe the truth of the gospel. That we were unworthy, and yet we find ourselves saved. And, and this is why the gospel is our number one value. The gospel is the one thing that unites all of us in this room. Like, it's not our hobbies. It's not our uh, love of particular music. Like... Dan would much rather watch a thriller podcast or something. I'd go play Pokemon. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's very different. Okay? But it's the gospel that unites us. And it's the truth that, that holds us together. 
The gospel is what is going to expand this family. The gospel is what's going to bring another two and another two and another group. It's the gospel that's going to do that. It's the gospel that extends the fringes of God's kingdom. This truth that God saves willful sinners gives us hope for our friends. It gives us hope for our family. It gives us hope for the city of Owasso, and it should give us hope for ourselves. In this gospel, in the dissemination and in the going out of this gospel is where our city finds redemption, not in anything else. And if we can give someone one thing, give them the gospel. God will open up doors for you to give many other things, but give them the gospel, because it's the gospel that keeps us from seeing anyone. And when I say anyone, I mean anyone as being too far out of God's sovereign reach. It keeps us from knowing that there's no one too dirty or too broken or too depraved that the gospel can't save them. It's what compels us to be kind to sinners in the same way that Jesus was so kind and gracious towards us. That's the first thing we do. We prize the gospel above everything else. Number two, secondly, we preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. And I know it's hard, but it's the gospel that gives us our fundamental identity. It reminds us that we were chosen even before we rebelled against God. It, 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 it reminds us that God called us sons and daughters before we even knew life. It reminds us that God made up his mind about us even when we hated him. And it shows us that our value does not stem from what we own or our intelligence or our skill or our strength or our notoriety, or anything else, that our value stems from Christ's blood shed on the cross for us. And only that. See, in the gospel, we find peace. We find our joy. We find our prayers heard by a God who's not far off, but a God who is near, even in our very own chest. And we see our petitions answered by a Savior who understands who was made like us and died for us. It's, it's the gospel that makes us faithful husbands and loving wives, that makes us obedient children and truth-speaking friends and grace-giving neighbors. It's the gospel that makes us humble servants. It's in the gospel that we find our assurance that God worked on our behalf before we ever asked and now we know that he will hold us and he will work on our behalf even if we don't know what we need, even if we're in the depths of the valley, even if we're despondent over our own sin, even if we're broken over the world's circumstances or the things that are happening in our life, this is where our assurance lies, that God appeared to us and he saved us in grace. Last thing. First thing we do, we prize the gospel above all other things. Two, we preach it to ourselves every day. Number three, we never depart from the gospel. We never <laughs> depart from the gospel. I'm going to say that one more time because this is our first sermon ever preached at Convergent Church. We never depart from the gospel. As individuals, as couples, as families, and as a church, we never depart from the gospel because the gospel is for every day. And the gospel is for everyone. See, God has placed Convergent Church in Owasso because He set His kindness on our city. There's a reason why we're here. 
This is why we live and breathe. We, we breathe and live to bring the gospel to a city far off. And if we depart from the gospel, we depart from God's glory. We depart from God's kindness. As Dan read earlier about Christ's heart, we depart from the heart of Christ when we depart from the gospel. We depart from the love of the Father when we depart from the gospel. And we most certainly depart from the power of the Spirit when we forget the gospel. So in light of all of this, um, I'd like to end our time of preaching as we continue to move on worship and communion. Um, I'd like to read the words of Martin Luther. Um, lately I've been reading some of his letters to his friends. I don't know why, like autobiographies really don't speak to me or things like that. But like when I read letters that are relational from one saint to another, that just really moves my heart. So I've been reading Martin Luther's letters to saints and to some other people. That guy had some language. Um, <laughs> but he said this in a letter to a friend. He said, my dear brother, learn Christ, specifically Christ crucified. Learn to sing him and to say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I, on the other hand, am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me as a present what is yours. You took upon yourself what you are not and gave me the gift of what I was not. And Martin Luther goes on to say this, when you believe that firmly, then you also accept those who are disobedient and still erring and bear with them patiently. And this is the part, this is the part we need to take away. He says, Make their sins your own. And if there's something good about yourself, then let it belong to them. My friends, we have a city to win. We have families to win. We have organizations to win. We have schools to win. All for the gospel. Just as Christ took on our sin, let us take on the sins of our city. Let us cover them in grace. Let us reach out to them. And whatever goodness we have collectively in this room, let it belong outside these walls. Let it belong to them. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, help us. Lord, we're so quick to espouse the gospel, but to not live it. Lord, we're so quick to forget who we were and what you've made us, and what you've promised us based on your grace. Lord, we're so quick to love the gospel, Lord, but to not give it to our neighbors. And Lord, not only in deed, but also, or not only in word, Lord, but also in deed. We're quick to preach at people, but we're very slow to hand them a piece of bread. Lord, help us. Lord, give us the grace that you had for us, for others. Lord, help us to love others in the way that you loved us. Help us to remember that the gospel is for every day and for everyone. Lord, that there's no one too broken or too dirty for you. Lord, help us to remember and have assurance that, that in our preaching and in our ministry, Lord, and in our kindnesses, it's you who brings sinners to faith. It's you who appears and saves 
And so, Lord, let us spread the gospel far and wide, Lord, in every single way we possibly can, Lord, in every media, in every form, in every act, and in every good gift, Lord. Let our belief and our behavior be one. Lord, and we cannot do this without you. We will never be able to do this, Lord, unless you rise up in us. Lord, and you create something far greater than what we could ever imagine. Lord, we trust in you. Help us to trust in you. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. You are so good. We love you. Lord, thank you for this gathering. Thank you for blessing us with your presence. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.